the Republican Party. This chick used to work for the um, Trump White House. It's amazing transformation. I mean, what were the consequences for you? Now she works for PBS and she for ending up where you did. She's I mean, talking about fuckface Nazi Trump. After January 6th, on January 7th, um, I immediately felt kind of a chilling effect um, uh, from those around me. I knew that that would burn bridges for me. I'd lose friendships in the Trump orbit, people I'd worked with for many years. Um, I, I lost relationships that I cared about. I had, you know, family and people close to me um, who denounced me for speaking out, um, who themselves had fallen victim to the big lie. Um, and, you know, listened to these elected officials and thought surely they couldn't be lying to them. Uh, it, it was hard and it was isolating, but I mean, Why not? I'm what, someone who... What's so hard about when you go into public, public figures, service, someone told public me once, like, especially in the White you. House, you should it's kind of have a resignation letter that. in your desk. Because the second that you're asked to speak about something that you don't believe in, do something that isn't right for the American public, and certainly undermine democracy, you need to be ready to just walk away and, and, and bear with the consequences. You don't get to be in a role as senior as I was in the White House and not be expected to speak out in moments that require your voice. So my loss is much smaller than I think the, the, the loss for our country, because this is not behind us. Um, we are... I would predict in more of a place to have something like a January 6th happen again than less of a place. And that's because we have continued to allow lies to be amplified. Disinformation is rampant and frankly accepted in parts of the Republican Party. And again, going back to listen to what Donald Trump says and believe it, because he is weighing in on secretaries of state races and governor's races because he wants to, in the future, be able to challenge election results to his own ends. Um, and he's inspired a generation of candidates who are going to spout the same lies that he is. Another dangerous legacy of Donald Trump that ties into all of this, um, you know, truly undermining uh. American democracy is the way in which he's changed our political rhetoric that we look at Democrats and the other party as enemies. He talks about them like they are worse than America's adversaries. That is so yeah. dangerous to the future of American democracy. It has national security repercussions. And that's been normalized in the Republican Party, where people are, you, they literally talk about the other side of the aisle who may just simply disagree with them on things like tax policy or, you know, being pro-choice rather than pro-life as scum, as talking about them as pedophiles, as things that are dehumanizing. This has become normalized. The left is guilty of it to some degree, but what America's adversaries want to see is the U.S. You know, eat itself from within. When we are pitted against each other, when we are not united, when we are divided on political lines, that helps our adversaries. And Donald Trump plays such a significant role in undermining what it meant to be an American, which is we all have a place in the democratic process. You have to let the other side win sometimes, and sometimes you get to win, and that is all part of being a democratic republic. He undermined that in unprecedented ways. And what does it mean that the Republican Party now makes the 2020 election fraud and January 6th, you know, is legitimate political discourse and censuring Liz Cheney? What does it mean for American democracy that this is where the party is? 
the Republican Party is in a very great place. Um, to say it's having an identity crisis is probably giving too much credit to where it is. I think the Republican Party is the party of Trump. Um, and what comes with that is that you're the party of the big lie. You're the party of undermining American democracy. That said, I'm still a registered Republican and I plan to stay one and fight with it. There are leaders who are with me. I mean, Liz Cheney has, of course, taken many, many arrows to stand up for the truth of what happened on January 6th and against the big lie. There's also governors, I think, who are stepping up. Um, you know, Larry Hogan, someone who's been outspoken about the direction our politics have gone. There are people trying to change the party from within, but um, where we are now is embracing a figure that is so destructive to the country as a whole. But by the way, he's also bad for the party. This man, he's not winning the popular vote. He couldn't win the electoral college. So, you know, my message to Republicans would be, clearly there is something off-putting about what we are doing. Perhaps it's bigoted language. Perhaps it's undemocratic values. Perhaps it's spreading lies and disinformation. Why don't we put that behind us? and embrace a, you know, a big picture, big umbrella, big tent party that could bring more people into the fold. You're not ever gonna get that with Donald Trump. I think he warned about what would happen if Trump were reelected, which seems to be what he's trying to do. What, what are you afraid of? If Donald Trump is reelected, it will be, it could be the undoing of American democracy. And I don't say that lightly. Um, one very specific thing that he proposed doing at the end of his administration and didn't do would basically change all federal government employees to being political appointees who are fire at will. And so what that would mean is he could literally undo the entire federal government, tens of thousands of people, subject matter experts, people who've spent decades understanding how our government works, working through multiple administrations, and stack it with loyalists who will do anything for him. That will have horrifying effects on everything, uh, on every aspect really of the American government. Um, I think you can expect that he is going to go after political adversaries. I think he'll go after members of the media. Um, I think that he will see his, he will use every lever of power that he has and will feel emboldened because he will not be having to stay within certain lanes because he won't be running for re-election. Um, it, that man cannot be in office again if we care about the future of American democracy. Thank you. Um, let me see if Michael has a follow-up. I have one question. We just, I don't think you said what it is you said the day after January 6th. Was there a statement that you made, a thing you said? Yes, if you could say it, if you could at least have it on the table. So on January 6th, in, in real time as, as this was unfolding on Capitol Hill, the insurrection taking place, my first statement was just to affirm the statement that Vice President Pence had put out saying he would certify the results. Um, and that was shared widely because I was the former president's former communications director. And then I put out a statement in the midst of the violence tagging Donald Trump, because again, Twitter and cable news are usually the best way to reach him saying, Donald Trump, condemn this now for our country. You're the only one they will listen to. Um, and then finally, and, and in between this, I'm calling people in the White House and trying to reach the president. Um, I then a fairly lengthy there with me Twitter thread, but when I say, you're MAGA, MAGA being Make America Great Again, I'm one of you. Before I worked for real Donald Trump, I worked for Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan in the Freedom Caucus. I marched in the 2010 Tea Party rallies. I campaigned with Trump and I voted for him. 
but I need you to hear me. The election was not stolen. We lost. There were cases of fraud that should be investigated, but the legitimate margins of victory for Biden are far too wide to change the outcome. You need to know that. I'm proud of many of the policy accomplishments of the Trump administration, but we have to accept these results. It's time to regroup, organize, and campaign for political leaders we believe in and let our democracy work. It's not and never will be a time for violence. If you believe in America first, if you believe in the Constitution, the rule of law, and our first principles, stand up for it now. And, you know, it was widely shared on the right and, you know, Fox News aired it the next day, right-wing media did, and it reflected, I think, the position of where a lot of Republicans were for a brief period after January 6th. Um, but then, as quickly as their position changed on Trump, they went right back into the fold. And um, on January 7th, I, I went on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News and kind of elaborated on my remarks. Um, and the point I made with this is, you know, I've spent time in democracies much more fragile than our own. What we saw on January 6th was, was un-American. Um, it will have repercussions for decades to come if we do not have a real conversation about what the democratic process means. And I called for him to resign, and if not, to resign for the 25th Amendment to be invoked. Um, I think I think then and I think now he is a danger to our country. Um, and, you know, that certainly alienated me with some folks. Uh, but privately, it's also where a lot of Republican leaders were. Melissa, were you ever, are you ever, especially then, afraid physically, personally? So after, after I spoke out on January 7th, I started receiving death threats on a variety of social media channels. It was the first time in my life that I, I had, and I never had expected to. Um, I, I was I was afraid, and actually, um, it was it was interesting in that moment. Um, Jake Tapper from CNN, who's been a friend of mine for years, had to like walk me through reporting death threats, and you know, connected me with the right people, and it was just so strange that usually that would have caused in a conversation I would have gone to some of my friends at the White House to, to deal with, but they weren't picking up my calls anymore. Um, I think there is a, a, there's a heightened environment right now where the rhetoric is, is, is so dangerous. I fear less for myself personally, but I do think our country is at a friction point that could become more dangerous and things like political unrest and violence could become more common. Uh, there's just, the, the, everything is trending the wrong direction on the right and we need more leaders to speak up because we're going to regret it if we don't. You let them keep running for fucking office. Congress people and others, a lot of the people who are leaving their jobs in Washington as members of Congress are doing it because they're afraid for their families. They, they, they're afraid to take a stance the other way. Is that really true to you? Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I've heard from members of Congress about feeling um, feeling scared for, for their safety. Um, Congressman Adam Kensinger is a friend of mine who's been a, a very outspoken opponent of the president, and he gets death threats. He knows. He, he worries. He's got a, a young wife and new baby, and that's not how American politics should be. Um, you know, I personally, we put up cameras and enhanced security around my house. That is that is what comes with the territory of speaking out in this environment. 
Um, and it's exacerbated by um, many of these kind of dark web forums and these places like 4chan and 8chan, but even Parler and Getter, where you can you wow. can spread not only disinformation, misinformation, but targeted harassment at public officials. Um, and do it with impunity. Um, you know, the, the big social media sites are actually, tend, they cooperate and they try to be helpful to public figures who get harassment, but um, those are very dark places that are used to stir up violent rhetoric. They were used on January 6th, and they continue to be used to target people who, you know, step out of the party line with Donald Trump. Okay. It looks like there's nobody home. Is Aurelio Casillas? Cambió los planes a todos. What is the feeling towards him? How are people describing him? How do they see him as a candidate? So going back to kind of 2015, when the former president, you know, famously came down the escalator at Trump Tower, um, it, it in some ways kind of rocked the political world and the Republican Party. I don't think anyone was quite sure initially how seriously to take it. Um, the initial congressional endorsements for, for Donald Trump were, were not the most conservative members. It was not the Freedom Caucus. Um, and it, at that time, most of the members of the Freedom Caucus ended up supporting people People like Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, we even had a few Marco Rubio um, supporters. I don't believe we had any who were initially supporters of Donald Trump, which was interesting. Um, but to kind of understand that moment, the Freedom Caucus of that era, which I was the communications uh, director for, was a much more traditionally conservative group, uh, meaning limited government, cutting taxes, um, you know, social conservative policies, but not really reminiscent of more the MAGA populist Trumpism that we've come to know now. Um, so it wasn't surprising that a Rand Paul or a Ted Cruz were a better ideological fit. Um, but yeah, he came onto the scene. I mean, my, my opinion was he was going to be a disaster for the party, but I also didn't expect him to go as far as he did. Um, and, you know, I remember going with Mark Meadows, who at the time was the chairman of the yeah, Freedom Caucus, to Fox News to go you. on TV and endorse Ted Cruz when Ted Cruz and, and Trump were really neck and neck. So it kind of, it, it shows you at that time it was people were in a different place than they are now. And of course now the Freedom Caucus has come to be one of the most um, kind of diehard groups that support the former president no matter what. What would uh, Mark Meadows see in a Trump at that point when he's going on to endorse Ted Cruz? Well, you know, I don't want to speak for Mark, but I would say this, at the time, Ted Cruz made sense. Uh, Ted Cruz was almost like the kind of godfather of the Freedom Caucus. He'd shown them the tactics of taking on your own leadership. He was a, a, a constitutional conservative, as you know, what we would have said back then. But it's remarkable how much both Ted Cruz has changed and the members of the Freedom Caucus. Um, but I do remember that once Trump got the nomination, uh, support for him did line up pretty quickly. That was what was really surprising to me to see because he was 
such a different figure in Republican politics, but um, pretty much once he got the, the nomination, at least publicly, all the members of the Freedom Caucus were behind him. There were, there were these rumblings of, you know, trying to do something creative at the convention, but nothing materialized. How are they seeing it once he's securing the nomination inside the Freedom Caucus, which had been, you know, an ideological group that had a view of what conservatism was, and he secures the nomination, and how are they viewing him at that point? How are they viewing the calculation that they're making in, in falling behind him? Well, and to, to understand the Freedom Caucus ideologically in relation to Donald Trump early on, you have to you have to know and realize this is a very socially conservative group. We opened all meetings with prayer. Um, we talked a lot about family values, um, you know, pushing for pro-life kind of policies in the House. So this figure in Donald Trump, who's known just for like, you know blasting like his affairs on, on tabloids and multiple divorces, seems like such a ideological shift from where the group was. And that was something I remember in early Freedom Caucus meetings was raised the most. His character was what people took more issue with than even policy positions. And I think some of that, frankly, is because no one actually knew what Donald Trump's policies were. He, he you know, was a chameleon in the sense that I think. He, he looked at the base. He said, I think I can replicate the Republican Party base. And I think he kind of came up with a lot of his policies as he went. The only ones that were really like long-standing, consistent policies were probably his stance toward China. Um, but I remember a moment shortly after Trump got the nomination, folks lined up behind him, um, that was the most significant for getting the conservatives and the Freedom Caucus on board was when Vice President Mike Pence came on board. And he made overtures to the Freedom Caucus, and that helped kind of uh, dispel the fears of the you know traditional conservatives. They felt like they had an ally in Pence. I know he and Jim Jordan were close and had a relationship. Um, but I also recall at one point um, some of the wives of Freedom Caucus members after the Access Hollywood tape came out decided to do a Women for Trump bus tour. Um, and at the time they asked me to help with it. I declined because I was not a Trump supporter. Um, but the argument that was made to me of why they needed to stick by him is... You know, first and foremost, it's binary between he and Hillary Clinton at that point. But also, he was going to have the ability to staff the entirety of the federal government. So think of how many conservative champions could get into these positions and advance policies we believe in. A, a valid argument, but it didn't persuade me. They went on the bus tour and I stayed home. Um, but that was the thinking for a lot of folks. There was a lot of a lot of rationalizing around we know we can trust Mike Pence and for what it's worth um, that was also my viewpoint I went on to work for Mike Pence I'm very proud of that um, and I will forever be grateful that Mike Pence served in that administration we've yeah. gone back and talked to people who were experts in democracy and they see they saw warning signs even the Iowa caucus Trump says was raped that Ted Cruz had raped the Iowa caucus there's violence at some of the rallies there's the speech that he gives about Iowa. would have been better off you know, if they hanged him. Did you see concerns? Did others um, you were around have concerns on that aspect fucking on the aspect of American democracy that affects for the institutions that. of government? So now in 2022, I've been very Sorry. outspoken about the they, fact that Donald Trump is an imminent threat to democracy. And, um, and not just him, but what he's created in Trumpism. We've seen it play out in other candidates around the country. But I have to admit, I didn't really see that um, early on. But um, in, in recent years, I, I read the book How Democracies Die, which was written in, in 2018. And it basically 
predicts everything that happened with January 6th, and it warns us. So I think I'm where probably the vast majority of Americans are, where sure there were warning signs, but they weren't really sure what to make of it. And I think there's also this element, like even when I resigned from the Trump White House in December of 2020, I couldn't even then have fathomed January 6th taking place. Um, but as we know, I mean, historically, and not just in the U.S., um, it tends to be democracies died today by a, more of a slow burn. You get conditioned to more authoritarian tactics, to the heavy hand of government over time, that when it actually happens... And then you've lost the freedoms and the way of American democracy. You may not even have, likely won't have even seen it coming. Why did things look different back then than they do now? And what were those decisions? People may not even know they were making decisions that would impact what would happen by the end. Well, it's actually one more thing building off of that, if you don't mind. Um, I think one of the kind of fatal flaws of the Trump presidency, but that has factored into his repeated undermining of American democracy, is simply the fact that he does not fundamentally understand the American Republic and the role of the president, the co-equal branches of government. He could rattle off maybe talking points that indicate he gets it, but he just does not. I was, I was with him countless times in the Oval Office where there was no understanding of, for example, why he couldn't weaponize the DOJ, why the Department of Justice wasn't, you know, merely it's a personal. hand of government that was supposed to work for hi, him. Hi, and there, I, there's, there's a lot we could take from this era. I think the fact that we don't seem to have basic civic understanding anymore and that a man was able to be elected president who didn't understand the basic American civics is, is kind of horrifying. So you entered the administration working for Mike Pence. Why did you decide to go um, and work for him at that point in um, 2017? So I had been offered an opportunity on the Trump campaign in 2016 to work on the communications team. I declined to do so. Um, I actually have um, admitted I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. I, I wrote in Paul Ryan and Mike Pence. Um, I just was not comfortable. It wasn't even in my mind about the, the threat he would pose to democracy. Honestly, it was criticizing gold star parents. It was, you know, dangerous, bigoted rhetoric around immigrants and immigration. Um, I just didn't feel like he had the character to be president. Um, but there, once someone is the commander-in-chief of the U.S. military, the leader of the free world, and he, he's there for four years unless he gets impeached, which, by the way, he did, um, and still is there for four years, I think that people of, of good faith who are public service-minded absolutely needed to consider going in. And I'm grateful that um, many people stepped up who maybe didn't support him but thought, you know, I could maybe help in a small way. Uh, so for me working for Mike Pence, I mean, he was an ideological kind of ally of mine. I'm a traditional conservative. 
He's someone I'd admired since he was the Republican Study Committee chairman. Katie, and you admired Mike Pence? He was someone I trusted. Um, I have always known him to be a man of character um, and somebody who will never in history, other than maybe for January 6th, get the credit for how much he kept the wheels people on the American presidency for those four years. Needle exchange. Um, so I was asked to, to go into his administration he after God um, and his God the said previous no. Vice President Pence's previous press secretary stepped down. I actually met the Vice President very briefly during the health care battle um, in 2017 when I was with the Freedom Caucus, and they reached out to me, and um, it was an easy decision. At the same time, I'd also been approached by the Trump communications team in the White House about working with them, and I declined in favor of working for Vice President Pence. Do you know why he chose to be on the ticket? So I think, I mean, there's a, there's a number of reasons. Uh, I think it'd be hard for us to find any politician of any party at any time who wouldn't say yes to being on a presidential ticket. Um, and I mean, simply to even get into politics, you have to have a certain level of ambition, but also the belief that you could do things better than others. Um, but Pence is also a very public service-minded person. Um, he, he, he'd been in the House for a number of years. He, He's a lousy uh, governor. He served as governor. I think, I mean, I don't want to the speak for him, but I think he would have probably preferred to be a, a running mate to more of a, a Ted Cruz or someone else or seen his name at the top of the ticket. And but doesn't care. Um, he got the call from Donald Trump. He tells the story in a, in a very funny manner, but um, he, I think he thought he could be helpful in that administration. And he was. What was funny about the story? Uh, Vice President, former Vice President Pence loves to tell the story of when he actually got the phone call to join the ticket. And he had gone out somewhere golfing with, with Trump uh, days prior. And Mike Pence is, at best, a very amateur golfer, whereas Donald Trump's known for being a very, very good golfer. Uh, well, so Pence leaves thinking, I have no way, no idea which way this is going to go. But he gets the phone call late one night, the familiar voice of Donald Trump saying, Mike, it's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. And Pence says, I don't know if there's a question in there, but if there is, the answer is yes. And they laugh, and he goes on to join the ticket. Can you describe his role inside the administration and how he sees it and that idea of the audience of one and yeah, the need to, to show loyalty overall. when he's in public and how seriously he took that? So Vice useless. President Pence, what the, what the fuck there's did two he things do you really have to understand about him anyway. to understand his four years in office. Uh, the first and foremost, he's a man of faith. He talks very openly about his prop Christian up. faith, um, prop which up the worst guides him for public service. He believes he was called to be there in that time. So that's one side of him that you really need to know to understand him. But the other is he's an extremely shrewd and disciplined person who understood from day one that in order to survive four years of the mercurial President Donald Trump, he had to publicly be aligned with him, not be seen as criticizing him. Um, so he, you know, it's something I, I would joke about with him, but he would take as seriously a Fox and Friends news interview as he would a meeting with a head of state, knowing that what gets back to that audience of one is so important because no one was safe in that White yeah, House fuck, at any minute the wrong dictator. step in those four years. Pence could have been kicked to the curb and replaced on, yeah. the, on the ticket. Um, but what I want, I want to say one thing about Mike Pence, because I think he's a historically misunderstood figure. Um, I, I'm, I'm proud to know him and to have served with him. He was someone who believed in large parts of the Trump agenda. There's no question. He was, he was very upfront about that. 
Like he was probably the most significant force behind the scenes an and helping hate. keep the pres presidency on track. Um, and you know, it, it, people always kind of say that without giving examples. But on everything from you know firing very senior cabinet officials to using the Department of Justice in ways that he shouldn't have, toward even just reckless policy proposals. Pence did have this relationship with Trump that was so positive for most of the presidency that he was able to be that voice in his ear that kept things on the rails. And I think he was the most significant force probably for good in those four years. <laughs> it's almost like there's an implicit or an explicit deal between the two of them that there's going to be no public criticism of the president. In fact, there's going to be public praise of the president. And then in exchange for that, you get a level of access. Now, do you think that's how he saw it? I think that Pence sure. had observed and spent enough Hi, time with, with President Trump to know um, he saw so many staff go in and out the door. He saw so many cabinet officials go in and out of the door and senior advisors. <laughs> He knew what not to do, and he internalized that. And he also, um, yeah, just, what was so sharply different between the dad. Mike Pence office and the Donald Trump Don't office within the White House is Pence surrounded himself yeah, by a highly professional, highly loyal team uh, that you know were people dawn, who served in very senior dawn. roles before and were very, very loyal to the principal, Mike Pence. So he was able to operate understanding that, like, you know, our kind of mantra in his office was basically do no harm. We were there to be a support system to the president, but certainly to never make bigger headlines than him or outshine him and definitely to never be disloyal. Whereas the White House, I mean, one of the most... The, the starkest things to this day from the Trump era is just how bad he was at hiring. The people around him, which is an indictment of the principal before anyone else, um, were constantly infighting. They were constantly um, focusing more on backstabbing yeah, one another than that. even serving the presidency um, or the American public. So that was another very distinct dynamic between the two officers. How hard was it for him? I mean, I think back now to, say, Charlottesville. I know you've come on after that. And he recently went to the memorial for Heather Heyer. But at that time, he had to be, I mean, while he did condemn the white supremacists, he was not critical of the president. I mean, was that, would that a situation like that be a difficult one for him? They're all it's, fucking it's white supremacists. They're because all fucking even as Nazis. close as, as I Come considered on. myself for, for many years with yeah. Mike Pence, there are so few people he shows what he's truly thinking to. Um, he was... Yeah, Honest he's with a me, he was direct Jesus. with me, but there, the, the one Christ. kind of sacred thing that I don't think he revealed to anyone other than maybe his wife and his two chiefs of staff um, that he's was gay. how he truly felt in gay. moments when the former president did something just reprehensible. And um, that was, so by the way, part of what protected him for four years, is he wouldn't even privately, man, he must have let out the biggest sigh of relief back. when the presidency was over, because he finally didn't have to be hiding what he thought and what he felt for so, such a long period of time. Yeah, well, he he's also not going to be assassinated. When you're there, is under assault. And the two of them Trump's were orders. reportedly best friends that for all of those relief. years, and now he's in a, in a job where... He has to watch that happen. Yeah, the, the Jeff Flake relationship, I knew, I knew was hard on him. Um, the, there, but I will say, Pence's humanity and like his ability to maintain good relationships was an advantage that he he frankly had over Donald Trump. I'll never forget uh, the night that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, passed in the Senate. 
Um, it was Jeff Flake and Susan Collins who were holding out from voting last minute. And purely because of this longstanding relationship between Mike Pence and Jeff Flake, after hours of talking, he was able to sway him to come on board, and ultimately Susan deal. Collins did as well. Yeah, um, well but I mean, it's, it's funny because something that, that Donald Trump would tout as his biggest achievement was actually, in fact, you know, only went across the finish line because Mike Pence and Jeff Flake were longstanding friends, and he convinced him to get on board. Wow. I mean, and that was yeah, that so point after the-, the president had been attacking Flake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let me take you up to when you join into the White House. What's the state of play when they ask you to come in and how are you evaluating that moment? So in mid-2017 is when the Republicans were trying to push their their version of Obamacare repeal um, and kind of do a replacement package. And um, ultimately the bill that was taken up in the House, which the, the Trump have, White House was supporting, the Freedom Caucus was were not just supporting. To tear down um, our position was it wasn't going to do enough to lower premiums and it wasn't actually doing enough to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which is what they had all campaigned on. Um, so in the final hours before the vote, which ultimately failed in the House, Vice President Pence, Ryan Priebus, the then chief of staff, of come to the Capitol Hill Club where the Freedom idiots. Caucus is meeting and try to convince them Voting to get on board because the Nazis. Trump White House was behind this and it was going to be a, a win for Republicans. Um, it ultimately ended up failing. A different version was taken up, which you know John McCain famously voted against in the Senate. Um, and the Freedom yeah. Caucus members were actually um, on Trump's bad list for a bit after that. He tweeted out against Mick Mulvaney, Mark Meadows, and Raul Labrador. Um, and it was a, a moment that I think the Freedom Caucus members started feeling very isolated, thinking, you know, he's more aligned with, with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell than us. Um, and during this period, Meadows encouraged me to reach out to the White House to try to smooth over some relationships with the communications team. So I did. I ended up meeting with Hope Hicks and Sarah Sanders, um, which ended up materializing into being offered a job in the communications shop for the president. Um, but at the same time, I had received a request from the vice president's office to interview and ultimately got an offer to be his press secretary. Um, to me, it was no question between the two roles. Um, I, I wanted to work for Mike Pence. He was, again, I, I voted for Mike Pence. I didn't vote for Donald Trump at this point. Um, so I joined his team in September of 2017. Um, yeah, and the, the, the relationship with the, the former Dude, members the of Congress was, was beginning to smooth over. Uh, Jim Jordan had a great relationship with Mike Pence. He went on to have a very good relationship with Trump, as did Mark Meadows. But... I think that moment in time um, of the Freedom Caucus kind of, uh, you know, blocking the Obamacare replacement bill was a moment that a lot of those guys in the Freedom Caucus, instead of staying with the idea of we want to take on leadership, even if it's our own, ended up pivoting to how do we get in Donald Trump's good graces. You date that change for somebody like Mark Meadows to, what, the summer of 2017? What do they see that makes them decide that the center of the party and the center of the caucus is Donald Trump? So I think it was the first time, like, it's, if you think about it, in the Tea Party era, you know, 2010 onward to the Trump era, to, you know, 2016, the Freedom Caucus guys had the benefit of always being the most aligned faction with the base. So when they took on their own leadership, they got the reward of talk radio praising them, Twitter conservatives, you know, singing their praises, being stars on late night on Fox News. Um, so they were very empowered through that kind of conservative-based ecosystem. 
But that began to kind of shift on its head once Donald Trump came into power. Suddenly, Donald Trump was the leader of the base. If you were out of step with Donald Trump, you were out of step with the base. And for those guys, they're out of step with the establishment and the base in that brief moment. And I think they kind of made the calculation, we probably are better hitching our wagon to Donald Trump's than you know, just continuing to fight in this much smaller uh, element of the party, which I hate to say, but I think is, is a dying part of the Republican Party, which is the traditionally conservative base. I'd point to, you know, Mark Sanford or Justin Amash, former Freedom Caucus members, both who left Congress. Um, that's not where the Republican Party is, and it's certainly not where the base is right now, the limited government, small government conservatives. It's interesting because by the time you're going to join as the communications director for the White House, uh, Mark Meadows is, by that point, inside the White House. I mean, how does he end up inside the White House? I think that, you know, throughout the four years, Mark Meadows thought about and had aspirations to be in the White House. Um, but I don't know that he ever, you know, had his finger on what the right role would be. Um, Chief of Staff, obviously, kind of probably would have been anyone's top choice. Um, I knew as soon as he announced that he wasn't running for re-election that something was underway, that he was either going to join a senior role in the campaign or go into the White House. What I was most surprised by was that he was replacing Mick Mulvaney, his, his longtime friend and another former boss of mine. Um, because Mick is somebody who could have told him what a thankless job it is, and that despite you know the security detail and the fancy West Wing office, it is basically a no-win role. Which is why you know a former four-star general wasn't able to you know survive it. Mick Mulvaney wasn't, and others. Um, but yeah, I think Mark Meadows had been looking for that for some time, and for what it's worth, he made a lot of sense for it in a campaign cycle. He fancies himself as is kind of a, an, an expert strategist to the base of the Republican Party, and he is. He's got a lot of credibility with the base at this time. Um, he's been, you know, kind of a staple of right-wing media and somebody who had a lot of cachet with uh, the outside conservative groups that have a lot of influence. So um, if this had been a traditional 2020 presidential election cycle, Mark Meadows would have made a lot of sense to be White House chief of staff, kind of a chief strategist. Uh, throw in a global pandemic um, and social justice protests over the summer, and I think he was, in retrospect, not the right figure to meet this pivotal moment in American history that ended up being just completely overshadowed by unforeseen events that required leadership and not partisan leadership. Um, which I think he ended up being uniquely ill-equipped for. So what makes you come into the White House working for the president at that point, after you had not taken that job before? So I, after working for Vice President Pence for two years, I accepted a role as the Department of Defense Press Secretary and Deputy Assistant to the Secretary of Defense. Uh, that was my dream role. I was the youngest Pentagon Press Secretary in history. I, for the first time in my career, got to serve in a truly nonpartisan or apolitical environment. And it was it was wonderful. I mean, just working with the, the military, the civilian population within the Pentagon, and under Secretary Mark Hester and Chairman Mark Milley, who I have tremendous respect for. Um, and, and it challenged me, it grew me, um, and I got to travel all over the world uh, with my role at the Department of Defense. So that is where I plan to hang my hat through the end of the administration um, and even stay on after the election had we won. 
Um, but, but COVID hit. And I, I remember I gave a, a press briefing at the Pentagon the day that it was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization. And we're, you know, reading all open source, but also getting the classified briefings of how bad this just might be. Um, and it was a really scary time in American history. I don't, I don't have to tell you that. Um, and the Pentagon suddenly, instead of dealing with, you know, working on peace negotiations or troop movements or, you know, Afghanistan policy, the entirety of DOD's focus was to combating this virus. And we suddenly, you know, the Pentagon was on rotational shifts. So I was one week physically in the office, you know, wearing gloves, wearing a mask, and one week out of the office. Um, and there was one moment that really made the decision for me before the White House job was even offered to me. Uh, the Pentagon's a very bureaucratic place, and that's a good thing. It should be because you make life and death decisions there. But I found out that basically a DOD stockpile had not released a bunch of uh, protective gear to health and human services because of a bureaucratic holdup. And I found out through a CNN inquiry that had come in from a reporter. So I tried for days to get an audience with the Secretary of Defense to say, hey, this is merely signing a piece of paper and we could get millions of pieces of PPE to frontline workers. And I couldn't get an audience with him. So that night, Mark Meadows, my old friend who's now Chief of Staff, calls me on an unrelated matter. And I raised this to him. And within minutes, he's on the phone with Secretary Azar, deals with it through DOD, and then millions of pieces of PPE are released. Um, so then within a couple days, Meadows asks me uh, over to the White House and first offers me the press secretary job, which I declined. I wasn't, I wouldn't have been successful at being the, the, the face defending Trump's policies. Um, but I said, I, I'd like to be the communications director. I think I could operationalize and professionalize in a, a calm strategy like I do with the Pentagon where I have 50 desk officers who reported to me. Um, he said, you know, take some time to think about it. He offered me the communications director job, and I thought back to that moment where I was able to deal with the stockpile issue so quickly. It made me miss the speed in which things can move in the White House. Come here, little and at a time of the global pandemic where I felt the whole world felt so helpless, I thought that I might be able to be more helpful to the response effort being at the White House. And I could spend the rest of my life, you know, questioning that decision, but that was my decision at that point. So what do you find when you get there? I mean, we know from the outside what we have seen from the president's press conferences and from what seems sort of crazy. What was it like inside? I mean, I can't think of a crazier juxtaposition than coming from the highly regimented, if not bureaucratic, Department of Defense, where everything had a protocol and a chain of command, to going into the Trump West Wing. It was chaos. Um, it was the... It was the flattest organization I've ever been in, which is to say a press assistant could walk into the Oval Office and get an audience with the president because there were no procedures, there was no chain of command, there was no structure um, in really any of, of, of the West Wing. And, um, you know, Meadows had just come into this role in March of 2020. I came over in April of 2020, but this, I didn't get the sense that this was like the growing pains from a new chief of staff. This was clearly a West Wing that did not function in any traditional sense and with any protocols and, uh, you know, procedures in place. And this, it was stark to me um, at a time when COVID is the focus of the entire universe that um, it just kind of felt like people were running around with their hair on fire. And I get this was, this was a crisis. So it's natural that there's going to be growing pains, but the lack of 
structure was was truly shocking to me. And and of course, the public knows all about the infighting. If I if I took one thing away from kind of the staffing side of the the, the Trump West Wing, it was that um, he he was surrounded. It was the first time I'd seen this in my political life. Many of the staff around him, I should say cared more about their own personal grievances with one another or ambition than they did about serving him well. And it was one of the few things that actually made me feel bad for Donald Trump. Um, I was constantly struck by that. The like hashing out small disagreements and the vendettas always got in, were always more important than actually doing the job in the mission of serving the American people. The claims about COVID that the president especially makes, the flu is no worse than COVID, the statements, um, famous ones that he makes in the press conferences. I mean, does he believe those things? Is he spreading misinformation? How are you viewing what is going on? Well, so what you have to understand about the, the COVID response within the West Wing is um, the, the president wasn't heavily involved in most of it. So so Vice President Pence's team in the Coronavirus Task Force would host a daily interagency meeting um, in the in the Situation Room where they would be making decisions on everything from, you know, supply chain issues to, you know, surging remdesivir to key places to, you know, what we're doing on, on testing. And then the president would get like a, a debrief afterwards. So he was not even as briefed or engaged as many many of the senior staff who were involved in the COVID response effort were. Um, but an infamous moment care. that I, I had a role in would have been um, the injecting bleach press conference. <laughs> so I'd been in the task, the coronavirus task force uh, meeting prior to that. And some hour. officials from Fort Detrick and DHS basically Something presented the study that found Alyssa that Farragut heat and humidity um, had a strong effect in killing the virus. It was very interesting. Uh, Vice President Pence said you should brief this to the president. And I was actually in the overflow situation room, ran in and said, I don't think we should bring this to the president before he goes to the podium. He's not going to have time to digest it. He's not going to know what his recommendation to the public should be. And this was one of those rare moments that I don't think Mike Pence was right. And he said, no, I think we should move forward with it. So I then run to the West Wing to try to get Chief of Staff Meadows on board, because, again, they were going to walk in, do a 15 minute briefing with him and then put him in front of every network camera in, a, in the country. And I just knew he was going to say something silly or dangerous or unhelpful. And I advocated that it not be briefed to him. Secretary of uh, Homeland Security Chad Wolf actually agreed with me, but I was overruled. Um, and that moment happened uh, where he, you know, he, he made reference to injecting yourself with bleach. And it was dangerous and it had real life consequences. And by the way, I, I have to yeah. say for the record, um, in my time dealing with the coronavirus, Dr. Deborah Burks was the most important player behind important. the scenes, did the most work, was the most honest and blunt and tough with the former president. And that one me? moment in time that she didn't even know how to react in that moment has damaged her in such a what I see as an unfair way. Because I, there was no one I knew to stand idiot. up to Donald Trump more than Dr. Deborah Burks. Um, and I regret doctor? that she was put in that position. Is this chick fucking for real? And that same time <laughs> is when George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement is happening. How does the president see that inside the White House? Because now we hear Shut all up, of this talk about using the military about and shooting protesters. How did he feel it? So the... 
the first time I thought about resigning from the Trump White House would have been June 2020. Um, after George Floyd's murder, um, during the social justice protests of that summer, um, the, the entire country was on edge, and absolutely rightfully so. And I have to say, Donald Trump originally had the the natural human reaction that I think most Americans had when they saw the George Floyd video. Uh, he was on Air Force One. It was played for him, and he, he was shocked. He was he was truly sickened by it. And his, his his first reaction was the right one. And a day later, he gave remarks down at, at a NASA launch, and he did say the right words. Then it was it was condemning it. It was calling it murder because that's what it was. Um, it was a message of solidarity. But as quickly as the, you know, right wing fever swamp of media started taking a different tone on on George Floyd's murder and on the social justice protests, uh, Donald Trump's position on it changed. And it went so quickly from what was the unifying message that was needed to when the looting starts, the shooting starts. I, I spent an entire day of my life trying to get him to walk back that tweet. Um, he ultimately did, but that the walk back wasn't even much of a walk back. Um, his it was a uniquely bad moment for a man who was like physically incapable of seeing things around him that are Operating happening as more important than himself and more in things that required you know, compassion and in presidential yeah, he leadership. And so he much. just was so wholly unfit in that moment. A lot of what we've now learned about things he was talking about doing during that, I wasn't aware of at the time. The first time that Shooting I became aware of potentially the using the military was a few BLM, days before a well-documented meeting in the Oval Office. Um, the staff secretary Shoot who kind of oversees, you know, executive orders and paper that goes to the president. He's kind of the clearinghouse for all of that came in to brief me and the press secretary and, and pulls out the Insurrection Act. And my jaw hit the floor. And I was actually kind of surprised because he's, he's a very smart individual who, who was the person who drafted it, that he didn't seem to think that this was shocking, hadn't been used in about 30 years since the early 90s. It didn't end up getting briefed to the president that day, but several days later, it came up in an Oval Office meeting that I was in with Chairman Milley, Secretary of Defense Esper, AG Bill Barr, the vice president and senior staff. Um, and he asked about using it. And I remember him saying, I like that word, insurrection, the Insurrection Act. It sounds tough. And I give a lot of credit to uh, Bill Barr and Chairman Milley. They kind of played off of each other. I have to wonder uh. if they rehearsed it before. But Chairman Milley puts his hand on the desk and says, I can do what you need to to secure the streets without using active duty military. That is a step too far. And then A.G. Barr comes in and says, you know, I was around for the Rodney King riots, and I'm telling you, you do not want to use this. Give me a chance to use federal law enforcement, and we can accomplish the job of securing the city. So they were able to ward it off. Um, but then, you know, we, we, we saw what went on to happen with Lafayette Square and um, the, the, the former president just wanting to use a heavy hand. And what, what I regret is, you know, and I wasn't the right messenger. I know that I had colleagues who really tried. Jerron Smith um, was a colleague of mine in the White House who worked on a lot of uh, policy issues related to, to, to equity, to policing reform. He was uh, significant on getting uh, the criminal justice reform uh, bill passed and signed into law. But I know he'd reached out to the former president and tried to communicate, people are hurting. 
you may not understand, but like what you're seeing in the streets is a result of people feel pain in this moment and they want to see change. Trying to communicate like you've got to have compassion here or you are going to miss where the vast majority of the country is. And it just never resonated with Trump. <laughs> that must of not. have been just an amazing period of time to he be in there. It's interesting too, you said you read you felt fucking like Mein Kampf, he it's on his bedside table. He got a sense of where the base was. And then he was funny, because we always think of Trump leading the base, that he gives the message of where it's going to be. Did you perceive something different in that time period? So I think the biggest misunderstanding of the Trump era is that he leads the base and the base goes where he does. I actually think that he's created a monster that he doesn't even control. Um, and he is actually very much driven by the base, not the other way around. And I want to be clear, I am a conservative who's worked in conservative politics for over a decade. Um, there's a part of the base that are good, honorable American patriots, but there is part that has really like come to life in that this era of Trumpism that is out of step with American democracy, what it means to be a patriot fucks. in this country. It's, you know, we saw that on January Second 6th. Amendment gun um, I point to some of the races we're seeing in 2022. Uh, you know, people are trying to out-Trump Trump because there are people who are now so worked up that that's what they want to see, whether it was Kathy Barnett, a candidate for Pennsylvania Senate, you know, was even further out there than Trump. I think J.D. Vance in Ohio, in some mm -hmm. ways, is trying to go further than President Trump has. So I think he's created something that's bigger than himself. And I a, a moment that it really it really uh, stood out to me that. was when he finally came around, took some credit for getting the vaccines <laughs> and said, you know, I got one. You should get one. And he got booed. And then he got <laughs> criticized in some of his favorite right-wing media. Uh, that was a, a really instructive moment that what he created could also consume him because he no longer controlled it. There's also was a sense of existential threat that was going on over that summer that the president was talking about. The radical left, Antifa, the election <laughs> is going to be stolen. You know, that talk begins even before the election. I mean, what was going on? Was he afraid he was going to lose? Why was it ramping up the tension so much? Well, something you have to understand about Donald Trump is um, he, he, in addition to being a purveyor of disinformation himself, he's also somebody who actively consumes misinformation and disinformation and often lacks the judgment to understand it. So, um, I mean, I think the Bullshit. question we all wonder it. and we could forever ask ourselves. Uses it for his own purposes to whip people up into a frenzy. You know, just sort of a like messaging mechanism. Duh. I think he believes um, a lot of the lies that he puts oh, out there and the conspiracy off. theories that he puts Bullshit. out there. I remember mid-summer of 2020 off. when he started railing against mail-in voting. Um, he had, you, don't you know, fucking believe that. in his mind and through whatever proves he was following you, what you on, just on said Twitter, wrong. Um, this notion that the election was going to be stolen from him because of mail-in ballots. Yeah, um, but yet he he's voting like that. He started going off about it so much that his own campaign That's had to say, sir, we are going to you rely on mail-in ballots shit. to win in certain states. You've got to scale back this fucking messaging. Fucking stop coddling the um, terrorists. And so... I think he wanted to kind of set up an excuse if he did, in fact, lose. I also noticed, you know, this was an unprecedented time with the coronavirus going on. And I can't tell you the number of times that he said in my presence, I can't believe this happened to me. 
about coronavirus. And so it wasn't <laughs> a global pandemic that's now killed a million Americans yeah, and poor tens Trump-y. of millions around the globe. You have he to felt fucking like it was do your job. victimizing him because of the impact it would have on his huh. reelect. Uh-huh. And that to me was so indicative of his character. Fucking malignant. Thereof. Yeah, um, but it gives you a sense of how he sees things, which is yeah, like Jim you know, Jones. This is this is against me. This is an attack on me, and then you know this is going to be stolen from me. And you know, four years into being the commander in chief and, and winning the first time, he still was blaming the Obama administration huh. for the perception that they tried to mm-hmm. you know rig the game against him. So it, he's a man that's very governed by grievance. And he also is incapable of admitting yeah, fault. Yeah, so he should die of cancer. So I think that whole summer he was kind of teeing up his own narrative for if he did eventually lose. Do you feel alone? Were you wondering why senior Republicans weren't standing up or why a Mark Meadows wasn't pushing harder or people who had you know, more influence with the president? So in my time in the West Wing, the, the eight months I, I worked directly for the president, I think I personally was... Thank <laughs> you. 
by just a poor character and putting himself ahead of the country at many moments. Um, but election night rules around. All the time, and, what are you talking um, about? I, I was in the East Wing, which most of the senior staff was. Um, I actually left shortly after the Arizona call and went home to watch the rest. Um, it was clear to me that there was not going to be a call that night, and he had campaign staff around him. Um, ideas before him, and I think he really started to believe them. Um, but what was stunning oh, to me is... It gave him an opportunity you know, to try to steal the He must have the, the 